Would you open your Bibles, please, to Exodus chapter 1? Exodus 1, we're in a new series uh, of the Exodus, so we'll be studying Exodus chapters 1 up towards chapter 15, 15 over the next several weeks, next eight weeks. Um, as, you're, as you're turning, um, I'll make a quick reflection. When I was a kid, this was before the internet, instead of the internet, we used uh, things we called books. Like They look like this. And uh, ideally with pictures. Um, but we didn't have the internet. And the only way to Google back in the day was a thing called the Encyclopedia Britannica. Do you remember that? The Encyclopedia Britannica? People would actually come through your neighborhood and peddle encyclopedias to you. And it was about 30-some volumes. Uh, that was the size of the search engine. It was about 30 volumes. And you couldn't look up everything, but you could look up the major things. If you wanted to know about the Panama Canal, you could find the Panama Canal. If you wanted to know about an acorn, you would go to A, and maybe it would have something about an acorn, but it might redirect you to oak tree O or nut in, and it would have a general discussion of nut. And then... Uh, Acorn might be listed. That's how the Encyclopedia Britannica worked. Um, but the best part about the Encyclopedia Britannica to uh, a kid growing up, and um, especially if you got the good one. I grew in a home of learners. My dad was a learner. So we always had encyclopedias and these sorts of things on the popular mechanics magazines and that sort of thing. And the best part, and I don't know if it was under F for frog or B for biology. I don't remember where it was, but it was this image of a frog. This is only in the good ones. So now you can figure out if your parents loved you or not. (laughs) It it was in a a silhouette of a frog, and then it had a series of transparent pages. Do you remember this? Can I get an amen? Yeah. (laughs) And if you took the overlay transparency of page one and put it over the silhouette of the frog, you saw the skeletal system of the frog. And then you could add to that the digestive system and then the respiratory system and then the nervous system. And it was a series of transparent systems that you could overlay and in doing so get a better sense of the frog than if you just had a picture of a frog. And any one of those pictures is not the whole picture, but the picture without any one of those pictures wouldn't have been the whole picture either. You know what I'm saying? We're, I would understood the frog conceptually better by taking different parts of it uh, as a collection of the whole. And that, I think, is a fairly decent explanation of what the Old Testament is. The Old Testament is a series of overlays that tell us about the resurrected Christ, that anticipate the death and resurrection of Christ and the reasons for his death and our hope in Jesus the Old Testament, all through the Old Testament, that is, um, it's the deep heart of the Old Testament, but we never get to see the whole picture in the Old Testament. We get overlays. That if you take one and you put it down, it doesn't quite make sense, but if you add story after story and image after image on top of one another, by the time you get to Jesus, if you're familiar with the Old Testament, you're ready for him. And you know him way better than if you just looked at him. The Jesus of the Gospels is understood so wonderfully through the Jesus of the Old Testament. 
And so this morning, we are in the gospel of Exodus. And we are in what is possibly the central overlay of the Christ to the Old Testament Hebrews. I don't know if there's a better way to express the promise and the hope of what God will do for each and every person that turns to him and says, help me, than the book of Exodus. And so with that, let's, uh, well, let's pray, and then uh, we'll turn to the word. Lord, shape our hearts and our minds. Make us receptive to your word. Um, Lord, I pray that in each person here, you would just blow on the coals of our faith, Lord, to make us want to know you more, to make us yearn to be more faithful children to you, Lord, and to, and to know the right things about you, Lord. Father, I pray that you would dispel in our minds the things that we think about you that are not from you, but that are from the world or from our own selfish tendencies, Lord. Put those away and uh, put in us your words of yourself. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so the gospel according to Exodus. Chapter one. I want to read five verses. We'll talk and then we'll keep reading. Here we go. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah. Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin. Dan and Naphtali. Gad and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Now, what you don't see in this Bible is the first word of the book of Exodus, which is not translated. It's not translated in most uh, English translations because they don't know quite what to do with it. And the first word is and. The book of Exodus starts with the word and, which is strange, which is why it's not there. Because it's starting as it's starting as though it's in the middle of a sentence. And if you're just reading Exodus all by itself, it's difficult to appreciate the purpose. But I think the purpose is that you would not read Exodus all by itself. In fact, I think the purpose of beginning with, and these are the names of the sons of Israel, is because the author wants you to know that this is not a new story. This is the continuation of an old story. That between Genesis and Exodus, there shouldn't be a blank page or a chapter marker. There should be a comma. And these are the names of the sons of Israel. And so what's happening when the, uh, when the author of Exodus is doing is hearkening us back, and he does this in several ways, not just with the untranslated word and, but also with this mention of the, of the sons of Israel, right? Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Zebulon. He begins to give us this account. In this account, he says this, 70 persons. Well, this happened, by the way. It happened in the very end of Exodus. Exodus chapter 46, verse 27. Let me, I'll read it for you. 46, verse 26. Listen to this. All the persons belonging to Jacob who came into Egypt. And he's already in 46, they've given all these names. All these people who were his own descendants, not including Jacob's sons' wives, were 66 persons in all. And the sons of Joseph, who were born to him in Egypt, were two. All the persons of the house of Jacob who came into Egypt were 70. So the math has already been done for us. But you cross over in Exodus, and the writer of Exodus wants you to think back to that moment. 
In other words, these were not, the book of Genesis and the book of Exodus were not two fairy tales traveling somewhere in the nomadic desert that somehow got thrown into the same book. It is a coherent set of overlays upon which we begin to understand the Lord. It is the very same God. In addition to that, you have this, this number 70. Now, I don't believe that's an allegorical number. I actually think 70 people went. But I also think it's important that it's 70. Because among the Hebrews, that would have meant something. Seven is a perfect number, a number of completion. Ten is a perfect number, a number of completion. Here we have seven tens. Now, that may not mean anything to you, but it certainly would have meant something to the Hebrews to whom this was written. In other words, you get the sense that the Lord has been at work. All the sons of Israel that, that have gone into Egypt, they numbered 70 in all, them and their children and their children's children. All that, that caravan that migrated into Egypt during the great famine under Joseph's, during Joseph's lifetime, that number was 70. It's a, it's a way of instilling in the people of God, and God wanted it that way. It's perfect that way. This was in God's will. God's been at work. It's part of the promises of God. That's what's given to us. Now let's read the next couple verses here. Let me just read six and seven. Then Joseph died, and all his brothers, and all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong, so that the land was filled with them. Now, there's a few things I want to point out here. One is the trans, an important transition that's just taken place. It's a transition from a story that has been about God passing his promises through a family, through Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, to a people. That's what just happened here. In fact, the very first time we ever read the Israelite people or the people of Israel in the Bible is right here. Up to this point, the Bible, it's been about the family. Notice it started, these are the names of the sons of Israel. Right? That is a familial idea. Right? When it gives us the names, it's the literal names of the sons of Israel or Jacob. But by the time you get to verse 7, it says, but the people of Israel were fruitful. And so this is a transition. This is marking a transition from the story of Exodus, or Genesis, excuse me, which is how God was faithful to Abraham and his family with the promise, and it's moving us into Exodus, which is an overlay, so to speak, as to how God is likewise faithful to his people. And one of the ways he shows his faithfulness is how they grew. Look at the, the growing here. Fruitful. It's about 10 Hebrew words, plus or minus a few. 10 Hebrew words and five descriptives of growth. We shouldn't miss it. They were fruitful. They increased greatly. You, you know what increased greatly in the Hebrew is? Do you remember if you had the old KJV? In the creation story, it talked about how the fishes of the seas teemed. It had this great word. I wish we still had it. We used it the teeming of the fish in the ocean in creation. It's a swarming. It sometimes is translated swarmed in the ESV. The birds there swarmed. That's the word here, that the people swarmed in the land. Isn't that great? Great descriptive? 
They were fruitful, they teemed, and they swarmed greatly. They multiplied, and it says they grew exceedingly strong, is what it says. The Hebrew there is they grew strong with muchness and muchness. Isn't that the best? That is, I'm using it this week, muchness. I'll have a number three with muchness. See what she does there. And they filled the earth. It's this great just example of it's, it's growth tripping over growth is what you should feel like. You should feel like it's just wonderful growth, which, by the way, is, is God's way of showing I have not forgotten the promises of Abraham because the promises that God gave to Abraham said, Abraham, you will be a nation. I will make a people out of you. That's Genesis 12. Like the stars in the sky, like the sand on the seashore. Genesis 22. Kings will come out of you, Abraham. Genesis 17. All this time the Lord has been saying to, to Abraham, this is how you'll know that my promise is with you is because you as a people will be blessed and out of you will come a mighty nation. And what do you read? You read in Exodus chapter one, the family has passed, but the promise has remained. It's no longer about a family. It's about a people. God is doing something in the book of Exodus about his people. There's another really, I just think, a beautiful image that sits here. And it's, it's, uh, it's an overlay, Exodus is an overlay in this case, of a most ancient account. Let me just say it this way. If I said to you the phrase, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, what comes to your mind? I think creation does to me. Genesis one twenty seven. God created man in his image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them and he blessed them. This is 128. And said to them, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it. And look in this text. Look even the order. Be fruitful, increase greatly. Multiplied, grew exceedingly strong and filled the earth. It's a, it's a Hebrew method of, of adding emphasis. It's saying that God is doing with the Israelite people the very thing that he ordained for the man and the woman in Genesis chapter one. It's, just, it's this beautiful presentation. It's as though God has been exceedingly faithful to the man. He's not just fruitful He's teeming. He's not just multiplied. He's strong with muchness and muchness. And he's filled the earth. What I want to do this morning is I want to keep two overlays in mind. I just want you to see something. My heart, my heart is that you'll see it in your worship, that you'll say these words are Holy. And God is a poet. Okay, that's my hope. And then maybe other good things will happen too. But I want to take the overlay of the creation story from Genesis to the fall, and I want it to be sitting just beneath this page, okay, as we read. And, and I want you to see this because Genesis, the, or excuse me, the account of Exodus, God is gonna show himself strong. This is a book that where God, there's gonna be taking of life, in the meeting out of judgment, there's violence, and much of it's going to be happening at the hands of the Lord. 
And sometimes when people arrive at Exodus, they think, whew, this is not the same God that I read about in Genesis chapter one. And I'm here to say they are the very same God. They are overlaid right on top of each other. And this is what you see. When you look at Genesis 1.28, when God says, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, this is what you're reminded of, that God is the giver of life and God loves people. That's in his nature. In his nature, God is a giver of life. There's nothing on earth that breathes the breath of air that God did not make. Everything he made. All living things owe the Lord the breath of life. And God loves people. He made people in his image and he made them the crowning glory of creation. And you see this. It's said in Genesis 1 and it's echoed in Exodus 1. They were fruitful and they grew exceedingly great and they multiplied and they filled the earth. Some of you may just need to hear because in your life, you have a conflicting version of God. You have, I know I'm supposed to believe that, but right now my life is hard or confusing or there's a lot of things that ought not to be or my life is not the way I thought it should be. And I'm here to say, categorically, God loves people and God loves life. And that has to be in you. Or it demands the right to knock on the door and get in you. Okay, watch what happens here. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, said the Lord to Adam and Eve. And then we read this. Let me read 8 through 10. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them lest they multiply and if war breaks out they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. The escape from the land, it's a difficult thing to translate. I think actually the more appropriate way is they take the land. That's where, I think if you're using the NIV that's what they, they defer to is conquer the land I think. And so you have this image, right? You have this image of a new king who enters the stage who says, doesn't know Joseph. Now, this is not an academic, like, oh, I didn't know that Joseph was the reason for the Egyptian might. Because that's what Joseph played a very pivotal role during a great famine. It's not that kind of, I just didn't know. It has more to do with, so you get a new boss. You see, your current boss says, Fred, I got big plans for you. We're going somewhere, and you're coming with me. And then he gets fired, and a new boss comes in, and that boss has no plans for you. He has no responsibility to have plans for you. You could go into him and say, but my old boss had plans for me. And he could say, well, you just, now I'm making plans for you. Right? We, the, this is what's happened. is a new king has come on the stage. And in fact, we think this is roughly the time when one dynasty of foreign, of foreign conquerors, the Hyksos people, were overthrown by the 18th dynasty of the Egyptians. So it, it times historically with an overthrow in Egypt. So what's essentially happened is native Egyptians have taken back from the foreign force of the Hyksos their country and they don't even, they're not even interested in knowing these Hebrew people that were friends of their old adversaries. That is probably more fitting to what's happening here. But he says, they're getting too many and too mighty for us. 
we need to deal shrewdly with them. And I just, uh, again, <clears throat> just I want you to see it. In Genesis, uh, do you remember what the devil was? What was Satan in Genesis? He was a serpent. I, I always thought that was the strangest thing, that he was an animal. Because wasn't the man and the woman placed... This is actually how 128 continues. Be fruitful, multiply, subdue the earth, and have dominion over it, over the birds of the air and the fish of the sea. The Lord gives the man and the woman dominion over all the creatures. And yet, Satan was a creature. I always thought that was... It was interesting to me. Well, here you have a moment. Let's just say... Here, the king, the pharaoh here, I want you to appreciate, he plays the role in the grand play. If you're going to overlay and overlay and overlay and overlay, so you said, ah, I now understand the full counsel of the Lord, you would come to appreciate that pharaoh plays the role of Satan in this story. He's role-playing. Now, I think this has really happened. I'm not saying that this is an allegory. I'm saying there is a deeper truth that's following along in the story, and Pharaoh is playing the role. Like Moses plays the role of Christ. Moses is a type of Christ, just like Pharaoh is a type of Satan. When, when the people are brought across the sea into the new land and given a covenant, that's indicative of us being brought out of slavery and bondage to sin and being brought into new life. This story is a, the major movement of the Old Testament and the major template on our salvation from the Old Testament. And the role that the king, the Pharaoh, plays here is a type, is the personification of evil. I find it interesting. Be fruitful, multiply, uh, fill the earth, and subdue it. And this king says, wow, they've been fruitful, they've multiplied, they've filled the earth. If we're not careful, they're going to subdue us. Come, let us deal shrewdly. Do you remember what the attribute of the serpent was? He was the most crafty of all the animals in, in the garden. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them. And then what begins to unfold out of this is a series of descriptions about how the shrewd serpent, and by the way, in the Bible, um, Pharaoh is, on occasion in the prophets of Isaiah and Ezekiel, referred to as the dragon. Right? There's only one other thing in the Bible that's ever a dragon, and that's Satan. Revelation 12, the dragon. Satan's a dragon there. Pharaoh's the dragon. So even the prophets saw this as a reality. But they begin to... The, Pharaoh begins to deal shrewdly, trying to understand, like, how can we keep these, this group of people rising up or becoming too strong? Or he just, He's fearful, just like Satan is always fearful. Satan is always an enemy of life and never a lover of people, unlike the Lord, who is a lover of people and the giver of life. And so he begins to oppress them. So let me read 11 through 14. It says, Therefore they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh's store cities, Pithom and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied. Isn't that great? No matter how much, how much the enemy tries to put them down, God's people continue to multiply. Some of you need to hear that. God is stronger than your problem. The more they oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people Israel, so they ruthlessly made 
the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Do you hear the repetition of the hardship? It's the way in the Bible it tries to drill into you how bad it really was. In Genesis 3, after sin has manifested itself in the lives of the, of the, the man and the woman, the Lord finds them in the, in the garden in the cool of the evening and says, what have you done? Why are you wearing fig leaves? What did you do, Adam? You can imagine Adam you know, looking at the ground. Did, did you eat the fruit? And he says, well, the woman you gave me gave me the fruit. And she didn't have anyone to point at. The serpent. And the Lord gives consequences for that, right? To the man, he said, you're going to labor. For the rest of your life, you're going to labor. And it will not bear fruit like this garden would have. The perfect world I gave you, I have to separate you from it because I'm here. And you don't want to be here. So you, for the rest of your life, are going to toil and sweat in oppression to, to make a life for yourself. You're going to eat thistles and feed from thorn bushes. You see, you see that here? The serpent says, hmm, if I'm not careful, they're going to have dominion over me. I'm going to deal shrewdly with them. Next thing you know, the man is oppressed. Next thing you know here, the woman. What, the woman's curse, this pain at childbirth, just appreciate the resemblance here. Look at 15. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra and the other Puah, when you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, why have you done this and let the male children live? The midwives said to Pharaoh, because the Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt well with the midwives and the people multiplied and grew very strong. There it is again. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Now, let me unpack that a little bit just to give you a sense of what's happening. For one, it's not clear, but I, I think this is the case, whether the midwife, by the way, Egypt has more than two midwives, okay? They have a much more robust healthcare program than you may think. Um, these are likely representatives of the midwivery guild, I don't know what to call it, the head midwives. And I think that they are Egyptian. It says the Hebrew midwives, but the adjective is not necessarily connected to the noun. So is it, is it Hebrew midwives or is it midwives of the Hebrews? And I think it's the latter. And I think that only because of the way they look like they're on the outside looking in at the Lord here. It says, but they feared the Lord, which is something you would think would be, and they feared the Lord if they were Hebrew. It's almost as though they are honoring the God of the Hebrews, fearful of the God of the Hebrews in their behavior. And they bear the blessing that the Hebrews get with children. Right? That's the Why? Because God loves life and he loves people. Like if you just gotta, that is a lesson here. God loves life. You know, Roe versus Wade, anniversary this year, 50 million children have died since Roe versus Wade. That's not the Lord, that's Pharaoh. Because God makes life, and he loves people. 
People are a gift. And God loves you. This is maybe you need to hear it. God loves you. Loves you. And he made you. And the enemy scheme does not love you and is trying to take your life. And that is the foundation of the gospel is that we are living in a world of sin. We are enslaved and depressed in a spiritual realm and we need someone to rescue us. That is the gospel of Exodus. Verse 22. This shows you the shrewdness of the serpent or Pharaoh or yes, that the taking of life and the oppression is done in so many different subtle ways until it just doesn't work and then the veil comes off and he just does what he wants to do in the first place. Right? Oh, let's make their work really hard. I, you know, I don't know what his goal is there. Maybe it's you know, that Hebrews would say, enough of this, I'm leaving Egypt. Or maybe they would be too tired to procreate. Or I don't know what's going on, but apparently he thought that that would solve it and it didn't. And then he turns to the midwives and the, the, the scheme with the midwives is the moment you receive the child, before it even goes in the arms of the mother, if it's a boy, it needs to have an accident. Even that's a veiled way of dealing, of, of infanticide. And when all of that fails, he simply says by edict, that's it, every male boy dies. So if you remember back in uh, Genesis chapter 3, the curse to the man was he would toil and labor and it would not be fruitful and the curse to the woman would be hardship and childbirth and the curse to the serpent says this, and I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. And he will crush the head of the serpent and you will bruise the heel of the man. That's the first overlay of scripture, the first one that goes down right on the, the silhouette of Jesus Christ. It's the first time that Christians point in the scripture and we say, Jesus is that man. That while they wounded the Christ on the cross, he crushed death. He put death to death so that all might have life. Right? That is the very first time. And you see it here even. You see, you see this attempt, this attempt right now of Pharaoh to, to wound, deeply wound God's people and chapter two says the birth of Moses, right? The moment it happens, the Lord says, I will raise up for myself a deliverer who will bring my people out of this land of oppression because I love people and I am the giver of life. And in this book, we're gonna read, week after week, you're gonna see where the, hand, the difficult, challenging hand of the Lord comes down uh, and he you may be tempted at times to go, what kind of God can do this? And I want to say, be careful because the nature of God is a life giver and a people lover and he is judging sin and he's judging wickedness and for that he deserves our worship. I'm going to pray in a bit and, and I certainly hope, um, I, you know, I thought, I kind of got to the end of this and I said, well, what's the practical take from this? And I decided, hopefully you can worship in it. Worship is practical. Worship is eminently practical. Hopefully you read this and you see God present in it and you go, yes, this is the Lord. That is practical. We don't always need to fix a problem. 
Sometimes we just need to visit a deep place in our soul and say, I need to remind myself of who God is. You know, but I do want to say that if, if you're in that season of life where you feel downtrodden by the enemy, whether it's sin in your life that you can't get rid of, or whether it's the oppression of sin that's all around you, I just want to remind you, and I'm going to remind you in prayer and remind you from the word, that the Lord is on your side. He has always been on your side. Let's pray. Lord, you are so good and so great. You're so much stronger than Pharaoh that your people would multiply and team beneath his shadow. And so, Lord, now we proclaim that. We proclaim that as a fellowship that you are greater than anything that would come against us. Lord, and I, I, I say that as a people, but I say it for the individual, Lord, that for things that are coming against people here, whether they live beneath the shadow or they are finding a difficult time finding hope, or whether their body is waning or their, their dreams are fittering away, Lord, I, just, I proclaim over them that you are greater. Lord, and you love life and you love people. And so, Lord, I pray that, that, that your nature, your holy nature, your good nature, that would send your own son so that we might be resurrected, so that we might escape death, Lord. I pray that, that we would have intact in our hearts a strong foundation of knowing who you are so that we can meet the Jesus who is. And I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.